reaching hearts through the proclamation of the word of God. And uh, we think of Hebrews chapter 4 and how it says that uh, the word of God is living and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's able to divide between uh, bone and marrow and soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So Lord, we just come today and we just lay ourselves down at your feet and we just ask you to wash over us with the cleansing agent of your word, of the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit would have his work in us today, convicting us of our sin and of your righteousness and of the judgment to come. Lord, as we examine the gospel and the various aspects of the good news, uh, even that part of the perseverance of the saints and that continuing to hold on to you and to be held by you, Lord. Lord, we pray that if there's anybody in this room today and in, in this service and in the next service who uh, are or have been believing in vain, Lord, uh, that you would just draw them and beckon them to a deep, real faith in you, uh, to not only believing, but also obeying you, Lord. And Lord, if that's uh, maybe the, the least of these here, Lord, or the, the greater of these here, Lord. If there's anyone in leadership in our church or uh, in active service or even on the elder board or the financial, whatever, Lord, we just invite you to have your way in us today and just plant in us that real faith, Lord, that uh, is effective to the saving of the soul. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, had in my notes uh, all the way, planned to plow through verse 11 today, and I just had to be real, you know, and look at it and just divide it up rightly, not trying to, to you know, we think Chad Carpenter made up uh, a good phrase for the school of ministry classes lately that it's, it's like dr- trying to drink out of a fire hydrant, you know. And uh, sometimes I try to do that, just like, oh, it's all so good, just you know. And uh, just a couple minutes ago during worship, I just felt like the Lord said, just trim it down and, you know, string cheese it, you know, just enjoy, enjoy that little bit, you know. Don't try to bite the string cheese all in one bite. That just doesn't taste good. So, so just feeling led by the Spirit to, uh, to make it through uh, verse 2 today. That's a... <laughs> That wasn't even a joke. (laughs) You guys, you know me. Well, last week we took an in-depth look at the gospel, all right? The gospel, which is known as good tidings, glad tidings, good news. And it was the good news of the gospel that it was at the heart of Paul's proclamation. It was Paul's message. God hadn't sent him to baptize read that early on in our epistle of 1 Corinthians, but to preach the gospel. The apostle Paul was consumed with the issue of the gospel. Whether it was at the beginning of someone's faith and their entrance into Christianity, or in the middle of their walk with the Lord, gospel was to be preached. It's the gospel of God that is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel saved us, is saving us, will save us. And last week we looked at six main points 
of the gospel. Sure, it's not exhaustive, but just for the sake of last Sunday, I kind of broke it into six main points. And if you weren't here last Sunday, I just really urge you to get on the church website uh, and download um, last week's message. Maybe you have a smartphone and you can get the podcast. Just go to podcasts and search Calvary Crook County. And uh, I know this week we've had some issues with our sermon player. So it may not have been up this last week, but hopefully this next week they've, the sermon website, they updated it. Hopefully it'll all be ready uh, this next week. So I urge you to listen to last week's message. I put the Bible study on that I cried less during. So uh, I think second service was less, less wailing on my part from the pulpit, which is good. I know I embarrassed many of you. But these six main points, I'm just going to quickly go through them. Uh, first of all, uh, was sin. All right, We started with the bad news before we brought out the good news of the gospel. And we looked at how we were created in shalom with the Lord, walking with him in the cool of the day in the garden. Our, our ancestors, uh, Adam and Eve. But uh, you know the account from Genesis chapter 3, how they were led away by their own desires and enticed. And uh, that leading away brought forth sin, and when sin was uh, fully conceived, it brought forth death, as James preaches to us uh, in his epistle. Uh, This brought about a sinful nature in all mankind, as Romans tells us, through one man, Adam, death entered the world. We all were, uh, were depraved from that point on. We had an inherited sinful nature. Something that comes through Adam and every single one of us, even when we're born, even in our mother's womb, have this sinful nature inherited in us. And then on top of that, we have imputed sin, sin that we just willingly heap upon ourselves. And all of this sin brings separation from God. You guys know the Romans passage that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The second point we looked at last week is that that sin brought death. And that was the promise in Genesis chapter 2 that you can eat of all the trees in the garden, but this one you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it, you will die. And they ate of it. And did they die right there? No, they lived out the rest of their life. But what happened was death was brought into the world. All right. Uh, Not only a physical death, but also an eternal spiritual death as well as death in all other areas. We see the bondage of corruption, as Romans 8 says, uh, that creation was subjected to futility. And this was a divine judgment of God upon sin. Creation was subjected to entropy or futility or vain, vain stuff, just constant frustration. Even on our best stuff we go through, there's just this just, it's like trying to run in quicksand, all right? Uh, even the good stuff. I was thinking of this this week as I read the scriptures to my kids, and we had a new Bible app on the iPad. Uh, it's called Bible for Kids. You should get it, and it's animated scriptures that you go through. And you'd think, oh, having a quiet time with the kids, and we're going to pray, and there's little animations of Bible things and monkeys swinging from trees. And was that a peaceful moment for the family? No. I want to push the iPad! Oh, I want it! Rip it! Shut up! Trying to read the Bible here, you know? it was more like kids okay Lainey okay you guys know me too well right and so sin brought futility and frustration in everything that man 
does. That's all bad news, all right? Sin, depravity, death. The wages of sin is death, eternal death, the second death. That is hell we looked at last week. But as Romans says, the wages of sin is death. It goes right into in the same breath. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus. And we entered in the good news, the glorious gem of the gospel, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We looked at the atonement, how at one moment Christ died for the sins of the whole world, one time, once for all. We looked at that if you believe in him, You'll have everlasting life. And as many of those who receive him, to him he gives the right to be called sons and daughters of God. They have an inheritance. God had purchased and redeemed what the fall and sin and death had done in his own actions on his life and his death and his resurrection. And if we would believe on that, that redemptive work would be applied to our account Now, we looked at how the gospel isn't just profitable for saving us and getting us into heaven, but we see that the gospel, it's good news that now, as Christians, we are set apart by his power as well. We are set apart by his work as well. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. All right, it's this continual work of God. It was God's work before we were saved, and it's God's work while we're saved. He bears fruits of his presence in our life. He transforms us from the inside out. And as Galatians 3 says, are you so foolish to think that now that you've begun in the spirit, that you can be made perfect through your own fleshly workings? That's foolishness. You know, don't try to do it on your own now. Continue to grip God and to let him work through you. And we saw finally in this good news of the gospel that that shalom is restored. That that walking with God in the cool of the day is restored. That that eyewitness, that eye-to-eye, face-to-face fellowship, love, dwelling together is restored in this life and the life to come. And we looked at heaven how the glory of the Lord is there and how there's no need for the temple for God is the temple. There's no need for a son because uh, the lamb is its light and we get to be in the presence of God forever. That peace with God is restored. So just a little snippet of the gospel and we looked in it for, at about, for about an hour last week. So I encourage you to listen to that once again. But wherever you preach the Bible or have the Bible preached at you, <laughs> The the gospel is preached. And one thing I love about being associated with Calvary Chapel is, man, we preach the word. We preach the Bible. And we just, part of our system is just we go, uh, you know, line upon line, chapter by chapter, you know, from the beginning to the end. uh, So that we might say like Paul did at the end of his life, man, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of the word of God. Sometimes we get to tough, rough topics in doing that. But in doing that, the gospel is preached. Whenever you preach the Bible at all, you preach the gospel because the whole focus of the Bible is Jesus. The whole focus of the gospel, of the Bible, excuse me, is Jesus' life and his death on the cross and his resurrection and the work that he does in those who believe upon him. J.I. Packer wrote a book about the Puritans that was called The Quest for Godliness. 
And he writes this in the book. If one preaches the Bible biblically, one cannot help preaching the gospel all the time. And every sermon will be, as Bolton, one of the Puritans said, at least by implication, evangelistic. And so as you come to this church, just know you can bring people from work. You can bring friends and relatives and you can just know, hey, they're going to hear the gospel. We might not do an altar call every week or something like that, but they are going to hear the gospel. We believe that it's the Holy Spirit that does that work of leading one to conversion, leading one to repentance. And so as we have that idea, we're going to keep going through 1 Corinthians. As Paul says, I declare to you the gospel here in verse 1. I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. And so for the next few weeks, uh, we're just going to be in the special text of the New Testament that just really presses the gospel in a very beautiful way, defends the gospel, lays out the gospel in, in great clarity. I was hoping to get to all that today, but it's just not going to happen. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Now you'll see that Paul says, I declare to you the gospel here in verse 1, which I preach to you. So a few things to notice here. First of all, the gospel is what Paul preached. Okay, the gospel is what Paul preached. Now, does anybody remember the Greek word for gospel? We learned it last week. Good news. So that's like the definition, right? What's the word in the Greek? Anybody remember it? It's like euangelion, all right? E-U- Angelion, right? Or in the in the Roman language, that U, it can be turned into the V for us, right? So evang evangelize, all right? And it's interesting that for gospel, it's euangelion, but for the word preach, it's euagelizo, all right? Or you think of like a funeral eulogy, right? You're you're sharing about somebody's life in the funeral, and so essentially preaching the gospel is eugilizo the euangelion, all right? Do you get in that? Evangelizing the evangel, all right? Sharing the good news. Paul wrote to the Romans that he's ready to preach the gospel. He was ready to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome. And he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for as many as would believe. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul was a guy that preached the gospel. Good news, the good news would be like the literal translation of it. All right. So the gospel is what Paul preached. And then it says, which also you received. So the gospel is what the Corinthians received. Let's kind of apply this to 2014 Prineville, all right, that the gospel is what Rory preaches here, all right, or the elders, the pastors, you know, we preach the gospel here at Calvary Chapel, and just as with the Corinthians, the gospel would be what Calvary Chapel received, all right, or Prineville received, the word received is paralambano. And the tense speaks of a single act of reception. So throughout the Corinthians' lives, and similar to you in Prineville, 
You had gone through a period of not receiving, not receiving, not receiving, not receiving, not receiving. And then in a moment in your life, you had. In a moment in your life, you did receive. The use of the word receive and believe shows that they made a commitment. They made a commitment as they received. Has that taken place in your life? Going through a period in your life and you might be there right now like, no, I, ne- I didn't receive the gospel. I didn't receive. This is nope, nope, nope. And then there'd be a moment in your life and perhaps today would be that day for you. Perhaps that day would be for you that you receive the good news of what Jesus had done. In Acts chapter 2 verse 41, a group of people is spoken of who gladly received the gospel gladly received. I remember going to Hungary and going to Brazil and we would do this mime drama. All right. So that you can share the gospel with people. If you don't speak their language, I'm sure Jake and uh, Kyla know a little bit about the dramas that you do in evangelism. But you know, as you're out there, you, you are a mime and you've got a special outfit on. And usually it starts out with five people of different personalities. You've got an athlete, you've got, you know, a goody two shoes, you've got uh, the partier, the drunkard, all these different people, and they've got black hearts. And they go up to the people and they show the people like, man, I'm, I'm drinking and I'm having a good time. It's great. It's great. But then they take off their mask and they show, man, I'm like depressed. You know, underneath my mask, I'm, I'm just, I'm hurting. I'm not finding fulfillment. I know that there's more. I'm suicidal. One of the guys pretends to, to shoot himself. Puts the mask back on. Everything's great, but he's got a black heart. As you enter in Jesus and the work that Jesus does through mimery, Jesus comes and he takes the mask off the person and he's able to get to their heart and he peels off the blackness off their heart and shows a red heart. And I love this part of the drama because you have to be really animated when you're doing all this. And uh, for me, who's not an actor, it's still kind of fun. And, and as the Lord peels off the black heart, you're supposed to come alive. You're supposed to come alive and just go around and, 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 and you actually go up to your other friends who still have masks on and still have black hearts and you go up and you say, come, come to Jesus. Look, look what he's done for me. And that's what I think about when I think of receiving the word, receiving the gospel with gladness. All right. Because you know that the heart has been changed. You know you've been given new life. You know that the source of that is Jesus and what he's done. How about you today? Are you still hiding behind your mask? Oh, it's all good. And I'm, you know, one of the guys, he's a muscle man. And he comes out and he flexes for everybody. He goes up to the people. And like, this is, I'm usually the muscle man, if you can believe that. And, and he goes up to people in the crowd. And he's like, you, me, now, let's fight. And then he takes his mask off and he's like, you know, terrified. Puts his mask back on. Maybe that's you. All right. One of the people is a hypocrite. And he goes around and he says, all of you are going to hell. This is his mask, by the way. All of you going to hell? Me? I'm good. I'm good. And he takes his mask off. And he realizes that he's fallen short of the glory of God. How about you? Have you had a heart transformation? Has God taken your mask off, showing you who you are? Are you like the individuals in Acts chapter 2 who gladly received the word of God? And then it says... And they were baptized. Have you been baptized yet? Once you've received the gospel, have you made a public declaration to the world that, hey, the old me is dead, 
symbolized in the burial in the water. And there's a new me. I'm born again. And I have a new life in Christ. Acts chapter 11 speaks of Gentiles who had received the word of God. These are non-Jews. These are people, like I mentioned last week, these are the Rory's of the world, all right? Half Omaha, or, you know, a 64th Omaha Indian. I got some Irish in me. I got some whatever, you know. Gentiles had received the gospel. The Thessalonians were a group of people who received the gospel, and it says they welcomed it. Not as the words of some man, but as it is in truth, the word of God that effectively works in those that believe. So this is the Corinthian church were those who received the gospel. All right. They gladly received the word. They realized it was effectively working in those who believed. So the gospel is what Paul preached, first of all. Secondly, the gospel is what the Corinthians received. And third, it says, and in which you stand. The gospel is the means that the Corinthians were able to stand before God. This word stand means to be maintained or established. It speaks of being planted firmly with a strong foundation. And it's through the gospel, it's through the good news of God's redemptive plan, what he's done and what he's doing in the life of the Christian that we are maintained, that we are established. I remember as a high schooler reading the book of Romans and just camping out on chapter 5 verse 2 where it says, through Jesus we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And as a high school kid, I remember that word access kind of making me think of like backstage pass at a concert, you know. And just like, wow, you get to go back to your favorite band and you get to be back there and, and you get to stand. And so much more do we have access through Jesus Christ into, you know, into the backstage, into the throne room of God. And we don't have to shirk back like cowards and, oh, I don't really belong here. And, you know, we can come with confidence, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done in this good news of the gospel. And you can stand in the presence of God. You have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So. The gospel is what Paul preached. The gospel is what the Corinthians received. The gospel is the means that the Corinthians were able to stand before God. It's the means by which Prineville, Calvary Chapel, Crick County, is able to stand before God, having that access. Verse 2 says, By which also you are saved. By which you are saved. So the gospel is the means the Corinthians were saved. The word saved in the Greek is sozo, all right? And it means to rescue or heal. To rescue or heal. And I apply that to the 2014 Prineville Church today. The gospel is the means by which we are saved in Prineville. 
by which we are rescued from our sin and the effects of sin and the consequence of sin. The gospel is the means by which we are healed from all of our mistakes, from all of our blunders, from all of our depravity. And interesting, as you parse out this verb saved, it's in the present continuous tense. In other words, you are being saved. As you look at the scriptures, there's a sense in which a person is saved once for all. And also in the New Testament, there's the sense in which this salvation is progressive. We have been saved. We are saved and we are being saved. It's that already not yet of the kingdom of God. But notice the end of verse 2. It says, by which you are saved if, you might underline that word if, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If you hold fast, by which you are saved, if you hold fast. There's Calvin paraphrases it. If you keep in memory, keep in memory the gospel, unless you had believed in vain. This speaks of not having due consideration or believing in a haphazard way. As Charles Hodge says, that this is a type of belief that is without cause, it's without effect, and it's to no purpose. I love the Phillips paraphrase. It says, if you remain faithful to the message I gave you, your salvation is being worked out. Unless, of course, your faith had no meaning behind it at all. Guys, this is a, an important phrase in the New Testament. And it's not an isolated phrase. It's, it's a phrase that we see throughout the scriptures. And we're going to look at it uh, throughout this morning. Is your faith one today, today for you, is your faith one that has meaning behind it? John Calvin says, if you keep in memory these things, or unless you believed in vain. He says these two expressions are very cutting. Have you felt cut by them this morning at all? That there seems to be a continuance that is needed in the Christian's life? These two expressions are very cutting. In the first, he corrects their carelessness or fickleness because such a sudden fall was an evidence that they had never understood what had been delivered to them. Or that their knowledge of it had been loose and floating, inasmuch as it had so quickly vanished. The second warning, believing in vain, he warns them that they had needlessly and uselessly professed an allegiance to Christ if they did not hold fast this main doctrine of the gospel. So, for you, Prineville Christian, do you understood what has been delivered to you in Jesus Christ? Or has your knowledge of the gospel been loose and floating? 
Has it quickly vanished away? Have you uselessly professed an allegiance to Christ, but have not held fast the doctrine of the gospel? Leon Morris says, if people profess to believe the gospel, but have not given due consideration to what implies and what it demands, they cannot really trust Christ. The belief is groundless and empty. They lack saving faith. So we see that for some, they do not hold fast. For some, they believe in vain. Your reception of the gospel is marked by a convinced continuance. If you have not that, you have believed in vain, or your faith is without meaning. As Taylor paraphrases it, unless, of course, you never had really believed in Jesus in the first place. So here you are at church this morning, and the question is asked to you, and I encourage you to ask it to yourself. Have I really believed in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible? As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when the Lord calls a man, he bids him come and die. Is that the Jesus that you believe in? That's not the Jesus that's preached in a lot of mainstream Christianity today. Ask yourself, have I believed in vain? Is my faith founded upon truth or upon a subjective experience? Ask the Lord today to take his word and to make it clear to your heart. What Paul is not doing here in verse 2 is he's not giving a warning against a true believer leaving their salvation. Rather, he's warning against a kind of faith that doesn't save. And the New Testament does this often. James does this in James chapter 2, when he asks, Can such a faith save? James 2.14 says, What does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but does not have works... Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith alone saves. Amen? like, I don't know, should I say amen to that? You can say amen to that. Faith alone saves. Amen. But the faith that saves is not alone. Okay. There will be many good and godly fruits blossoming out of the life of a Christian. Fruits of works of righteousness, works of love. Faith without these types of works is dead. It's imperative that you understand that the gospel brings you into an experience which not only redeems you from your sin, but saves you and keeps you. And if you are not holding firmly to the word or the gospel, then the faith that you have adopted is not a saving faith. It's not a faith that saves. There are all kinds of people that say they have faith. 
George Michael. You gotta have faith, the faith, the faith. You gotta have faith, the faith. Woohoo! George Michael has faith, right? All right? Country music is filled with all sorts of great and wonderful songs about faith. But these individuals have no assurance of salvation. They haven't experienced the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their life, transforming them from the inside out. Perhaps on the outside, there's all forms of morality. But the fruits of the Holy Spirit are not evident. There must be a continuing on in the things that we learn from the scriptures. Holding fast, our text says, unless you've believed in vain. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. Speaks of Jesus redeeming us and paying for us in the body of his flesh through death to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That all sounds good, right? That's all signs of redemption, being holy, being sanctified. Verse 23 has that clause word, if. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So for this redemptive work to take place, this presentation of us holy before the Lord, blameless and above reproach in his sight, this is something that happens if, Indeed, you continue in the faith. It's not just a one-time thing that happened years ago or at that camp or at that, you know, I'm a guy that put on camps and I've seen a lot of kids make professions of Christ and many of them are walking with Christ today. Praise God. And many of them aren't. All right. And so I can't just tell them, well, don't worry about it, buddy. You had that camp experience 12 years ago. That's all you needed. Or you've had the Billy Graham experience or the Greg Laurie, wonderful ministries. But you can't just put your hope in signing a card or lifting a hand. That's not where it ends, all right? There's to be this examining of yourself daily, the book of Hebrews says, to see whether you are of the faith. There's to be a continuing in the faith. Becoming grounded and steadfast. These are evidences that that faith at the camp or that faith at the Billy Graham, whatever it was, or here at church, that that was actual, saving, effective faith. Now, this theme of continuing in the faith is seen in the book of Hebrews radically. The whole purpose of the letter to the Hebrews was to exhort Jewish Christians to continue persevering forward towards maturity in their Christian faith. But it was also to warn these Hebrews of pending dangers of abandoning their faith. The author of Hebrews uh, has a purpose woven throughout the letter in which he uses key words like be diligent. All right. Be diligent, be mature, key words like you must persevere, you must persevere, you must endure or you have need of endurance. Take heed lest you drift away. Or there's a wicked heart of unbelief that departs from the living God. 
or that would fall away. These are all phrases that the author of the book of Hebrews uses. And let me just take you to one, one text that's just very sobering in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So this group of people that's referred to in Hebrews you know, it's a group, there's debate on whether these are real Christians or not. There's great scholars on, on all sides of the argument. But one thing's for certain, they definitely profess to be Christians. They have that profession. All right, I raised my hand at that event. I signed the card, you know. Uh, I did this or I did that, that one time, all right. I profess to have become a partaker of the Holy Spirit at one time or have received the word of God at one point. But then there comes another time in their life later on where they willfully sin without a care in the world of the holiness of God. They essentially abandon God. They leave their faith or this professed faith, if you will. And if they had been alive during Jesus's day, they would have been counted with the number standing before Pontius Pilate who would have said, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And crucify Jesus, all right? So there's this point in, in this, these people's lives, all right, where they profess a faith in Christ. Whether or not they were really saved, only the Lord knows. There's different sides of the camp there. But at some point, they say, forget Jesus. Forget Jesus. I love this life, all right? Kill Jesus. I don't care. I'm not coming to repentance from my sin. Now, Sinclair Ferguson says that the New Testament warns us by precept and example that some professing Christians may not persevere in their faith in Christ to the end of their lives. The Bible warns of it and experience confirms the fact. And we can all say that, okay, the Bible warns of it. And I'll tell you, I'm only 32 and I can give you multiple examples of people that at one point we're leading missionary journeys, all right, caring for orphans, part of Bible colleges, and now they would tell you that they are happy atheists, okay? Now, do I tell this individual, hey, it's cool. We went to high school camp together, all right? You got baptized. You're good to go, all right? Or do I tell this person, man, I am concerned. I am concerned that you are not holding firmly to the faith you once proclaimed, you're in a dangerous place, all right? Get away from the cliff. The warning signs are all throughout the New Testament. What are you doing so near the cliff and falling off? Get away from it. Don't drift away, which is this slow process of becoming lukewarm. Don't go there. Abide with Christ. Abide with Christ. Those who have come to Christ, it's clear, will no longer live in moral carelessness. By the fruit of the Spirit in their life, they will endeavor to live a holy life. Paul tells Timothy, let anyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Theologian named Adolf Saphir says, the apostle regards 
the retrogression of the Hebrews with dismay, he sees in it the danger of an entire confirmed, willful, and irrecoverable apostasy from the truth. He beholds them on the brink of a precipice, and he therefore lifts up his voice and with vehement yet loving earnestness warns them against so fearful and evil. It's okay to pursue those who are no longer abiding in Christ and warn them of the dangers to come. John Brown wrote at the end of the uh, 19th century from Scotland, No saints behaving like a sinner can legitimately enjoy the comfort that the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is fitted and intended to communicate to every saint acting like a saint. And many people walk around trumpeting, hey, once saved, always saved. All right, lifted my hand, made the confession, prayed that specific sinner's prayer that we find all over the Bible. All right, so I'm good to go. And even the Calvinists who have a doctrine such as perseverance of the saints would say, that's not what we're talking about. And even the Arminianists would say, man, We can't say that someone who just says a one-time confession and never bears any fruits of knowing Christ, who's never held fast, that they are guaranteed salvation. If they're just living the life of a blatant sinner. We hear it with frequency. Well, you know, she has no interest in the gospel. Going to church, worshiping with the saints... It's a good thing we believe in eternal security. We hear that all the time. We just say, man, that individual's in a scary place. And I'm not condemning them. The Lord knows. But I would say, hey, are you holding firmly to the gospel? Or is the faith that you profess a vain faith, as the Apostle Paul says? We are kept through faith. Our persistence is concurrent with our faith. The New Testament trumpets that where there is faith, there is salvation. And there is evidence in our life of salvation by our very persistence and continuing on in Christ. One man said, perseverance of the saints is proved by persistence of the saints. And one's ability to hold firmly is not a means to being or staying saved, but one's ability to hold firmly is an evidence of having been firmly held. Only those who are firmly held hold firmly. Another man writes, in holding steady to the end, we show ourselves to be held. Leon Morris writes, it is our continuance that gives evidence that we have been taken up and held. Our continuance is not the ground of our salvation. What is the ground of our salvation? It's the cross. The cross is the ground of our salvation, where we were picked up and held fast by our God. But our holding firmly is the evidence that that transaction has taken place. 
What about those who by their lifestyle and by their conduct, by their words, fully reject that they ever once declared to believe? And just from my studying, and I've gone on all sorts of different sides of the camp in my studying, I believe that this person never had a genuine faith in the first place. They never had what's called a saving faith. But rather, as Paul says, they believed in vain. Charles Hodge says their salvation, however, is conditional on their perseverance. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 tells us that they went out from among us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Belonging is a very important thing. It's important to us, you know. Coaching soccer and seeing the roster of the team. It's like, oh man, like there's my name with this team, Blue Lightning, woohoo, you know. And then, oh, there's my son's name on the roster. We belong, or you belong to your club. And you see, it's a very important, sacred thing. Do you belong to Jesus? Last week we looked at the book of life. Anyone whose name is written in the book of life, man, they will be in paradise with God for eternity. Anyone whose name is not written on the roster of the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And that is called the second death. There's an old hymn that says, When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he can hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. He must hold me fast. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, the chorus says. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. You know, are you at a place in your Christian faith where you feel like you're hanging on by your fingernails just barely making it. And when you ask yourself the question, am I truly saved? Your first instance is to say, well, I've read my Bible three times this week and I went to equip school of ministry and I was at church two Sundays out of this month. And that's all pretty good. I I, I must be saved. Then guys, you don't have a right understanding of what God has accomplished in the gospel. All right. That he at the cross Paid it all. You're not saved by works. What you can do in those instances when you ask yourself that question is say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All right? It's there where he holds you. And much as you with your little toddlers when you had them, or if you've got them now, they begin to walk and they're all over the place. And you reach down and you grab hold of their hand and you hold it firmly. What do they do in response? They hold back. They hold back. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of salvation. He 
has reached out his hand to save you. In the paradox of it all, you received that hand. And he's holding firmly. And you in response hold firmly. Those who hold firmly to the end give evidence that they were ever held. John chapter 10 verse 27 through 30 says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And when sin comes into our lives, as it usually does, <laughs> it spoils fellowship for sure. But it doesn't negate our relationship to God. And if you're here today, and the Holy Spirit, by His grace, is showing you that you have believed in vain up until this point, man, come this morning. Come to the table. Come to the communion table Take the elements of the bread and the cup that are a symbol of the work of Jesus Christ, stretching out his hand to you to draw you close and rest in his firm grip. It's in resting in his firm grip that you'll get a grip. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. There's assurance for salvation, for certain. And John chapter 5 says that this whole letter of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, says this whole letter was written that you might know you have eternal life. You can know you have eternal life. But the very next word says that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. How do you know you have eternal life? If you continue to believe in the Son of God. Have the worship team come back up. Controversial subject. I've taught both sides of the camp. But what I know from both sides, biblical just those that are endeavoring from the scriptures to have an understanding of eternal security, is that they would say, hey, if you're not holding firm, you're in a dangerous place. If you're just blatantly sinning, don't give a care about Jesus, what he's done. Hebrews chapter 10 has a, a very sobering remark there. Sinning willfully, after receiving the truth that you're trampling the Son of God under your feet and you're counting the blood of the covenant as just some common thing. That is a dangerous, dangerous place to be in. And if that's you, I fear that you've believed in vain. But by God's mercy, by his grace, he's drawn us here afresh this morning to examine our lives, to have the Holy Spirit examine our lives. To confess any just hard-heartedness towards him, any 
evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. The hymn says, prone to wander, oh, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. And in coming to the communion table today, we come with a fresh reminder of this new covenant that was bought and paid for and sealed with the death of Jesus. We'll ponder through partaking of communion, receiving into our inner man just the, the work of the cross where he initiated a handhold with us. Focus on that today. Meditate on the cross. Meditate on his love. Meditate on his sacrifice. The atoning work of the cross, how he bought and paid for all of your sins. How he was the gift that satisfied the wrath of God. And let the gospel, let what Jesus has done, tighten your handhold today, holding firmly. Or as Calvin's translation, remembering the gospel, keeping it in mind. Inviting the Lord to expose our sin, show us our sin. Begging God by His Spirit to produce godly sorrow for that sin. It's worked out in repentance. That we might depart from iniquity. That we might continue in the faith. Steadfast, grounded, immovable. Let's come to the altar. And afresh today, partake of the benefits that Jesus' death provided to all who would believe in him. Come as you're ready. Take the elements to your seat. Ponder these things. Pray to the Lord. Confess your sin. Declare maybe your backslidings. Praise God. There's good news. Jeremiah says, come to me and I will heal your backslidings. Come to the Lord today, confessing sins, confessing failures. Be cleansed today. Be healed today. Retighten your grip on the gospel today. Let's worship. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.